The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your magnificent word this morning, particularly this passage in Galatians chapter 3 that is so rich with incredible doctrines that are so vital to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, and yet a passage that is very difficult for us to uh, comprehend because it is so deep and complex and has so many different threads running through it. Father, we pray now that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit this morning that we can understand this passage and see how all of these important teachings relate to our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in an era today when people hold on to, to immediate gratification as, the, as sort of the rule of the, of the day. We want instant everything. We're used to fast foods, picking up microwave dinners, sticking them in the microwave, punching the button, and it's ready right then. We're used to uh, uh, getting information over the Internet in just a matter of seconds. If we want to purchase a particular item and it's not anywhere near us, which is true up in this part of Connecticut where everything seems far away, we can just plug into the Internet, call up the store, whatever it is, punch in a couple of numbers, and we've ordered it and it'll be here UPS or overnight mail in a day or two. Instant gratification. Trouble is, instant gratification and instant response doesn't work in the spiritual life. The process of spiritual growth is a lengthy process. It is a time-consuming process, and it is a slow process. It is the process of renovating our thinking. To renovate our thinking according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, takes a tremendous amount of time and mental energy and cognitive sweat. These are not values held dear by the common American today. So they would much rather go to church where they have uh, 30 minutes of singing and a 20-minute sermonette focusing on uh, giving you somehow some little uh, tidbit that you can go home and apply this afternoon. The trouble is that produces anemic Christians who have no endurance, no persistence, and no comprehension of what God has provided for us or how to live a spiritual life. And so when you come to passages like the one we're in now in Galatians chapter 3, too often the messages just go right by them or they don't, the pastors or teachers don't even take the time to understand the dynamics that are going on beneath the passage or in the passage, the cultural context. A few years ago, a friend of mine in seminary was telling me a story about a sad event that occurred in class. A professor was a good friend of mine, and uh, he always uh, we took his courses more for his little asides than we did for the content, although the content was always tremendous. And he was bemoaning the fact one day that it had been years since he had been in a Bible church where the Sunday morning message focused on doctrine. Now, let me tell you something, folks. If you're not getting any kind of doctrine, even basic doctrine related to salvation, on a Sunday morning in a Bible church, 
you're not going to get it anywhere in the country. You will get a lot of uh, maybe biblical talk, quotation from a lot of scriptures and a lot of application. But if you have application without understanding the framework, the that which undergirds the application, then that trans- translates into nothing but morality. You have to understand the spiritual dynamics which underlie the passage. So he was bemoaning that fact, and one student in class raised his hand after he had given this little discourse on the importance of teaching doctrines at church. And the student said, well... Dr. Hannah, I'm sorry, but I don't think we can all be like Dr. So-and-so. I'm not going to mention who he mentioned because I don't think most of you know him, but this is one of the most popular radio teachers today. Written probably 40 or 50 different books, well-known. And he is shallow. He's right. He is orthodox. He is biblically correct, but he is very shallow or superficial. And if most of you heard him, you wouldn't think he was teaching any doctrine at all. That's how sad things are today, is that what people think of as a doctrinal message is so far from being a doctrinal message that it doesn't even come close to being in that that ballpark. Now, we're in a passage today that, that just all kinds of doctrines come together and all kinds of illustrations come together, and it's it's difficult to understand, and frankly, as a, as a pastor... I just get excited when I start studying a passage like this, and I've spent a lot of time the last two or three days in, in this passage, and there's so much here, it it it's almost boggles the mind as to how to communicate it to everybody. So we need to step back a minute and get the, get the context. I think when we get into a passage like this, because there's so much there, and it is so rich, that it's a lot easier for us to grasp the overview than to get bogged down in some of the details because uh, we, we, we can get so bogged down in the details we lose where we're going. So this is section we started last Sunday morning, Galatians 3.19. From 3.19 down through verse 25, the Apostle Paul is making an argument for the temporary nature of the Mosaic Law. You see, this is something that very few Christians have understood throughout the years. They have consistently gone back to the Mosaic Law as the basis for living the spiritual life. And the Mosaic Law has nothing to do with the spiritual life, period. And that's the point of Galatians. It has nothing to do with salvation. It had nothing to do with salvation in the Old Testament. And it certainly has nothing to do with salvation in the old, in, in the New Testament, in the church age. The Mosaic Law we saw last week is temporary. It is temporary and it is inferior. It is inferior because verse 19 says that it was given through inferior mediators, angels and Moses, as opposed to the New Covenant, which was established by the mediator Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. Secondly, it is in, the law was inferior because it was never designed to impart life. We saw that in verse 21, that the Mosaic law could not impart life. It was not, never designed to give or provide salvation. Its purpose is given in verse uh, 22. The scripture, that is the Mosaic law in context, has imprisoned all men under sin. That was the point of the Mosaic Law. Not to show men that if you abide by all of these principles, you can get into heaven. 
but that it is absolutely impossible for man to keep the law. That represents the, the law represented the absolute standard of God, and if man could not keep the law, as the Scripture says, if you failed in one part, you failed in all. Therefore, all are condemned by the Mosaic law. And then starting in verse 23 and extending down through chapter 4, verse 11, the Apostle Paul communicates these principles by way of an illustration, an analogy. And in this analogy, he commingles or mixes three different metaphors, three different analogies, one based on slavery, one based on the principle of what is called in the Greek the pedagogues, the pedagogue, translated poorly a tutor, that doesn't really communicate what this means, and the metaphor of adoption. Now, what do these three things have in common? Slavery, the pedagogue, and adoption. All three apply to the social structure of the family in Roman society. If you don't understand what took place in Roman society in relationship to the family structure and the law related to the authority of the father and the son and the process of, of, of uh, bringing a son up in view of his inheritance, if you don't understand the dynamics that took place in Roman society, you can't appreciate what's, what Paul's talking about here. And if you can't appreciate that, you'll never be hit with the impact of what God has provided for us and what Paul is saying in this passage. This whole passage, especially as we come down to the verse we're in this week, verse 26, where we read, For you are all sons of God. And this word sons is a very important word. There are a number of different words in the Greek for child or for son. You remember the verse we studied in John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as, as received him... To them he gave the power to be called the sons of God. Well, that word that's translated sons in that passage is this word, techna, technon, T-E-K-N-O-N. And that can mean child or son, offspring. It has a variety of meanings, but it can cover the entire range from birth to an adult son. This is not the word that Paul is using here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. Here he uses the word huias. This is the same word that is used to describe Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Huias means an adult son. And so there's a very important point that Paul is making here about adulthood versus childhood in relation to the uh, Roman family. To summarize these four verses that we're, going, we're looking at this morning, verses 26 to 29, Paul is saying, since you Galatians, that is, you're Gentiles, notice there's a shift. Back in verse 23, Paul says, but before faith came, that is, and we asked the question last week, what does he mean by faith? Wasn't faith an operative principle in the Old Testament? Sure it was. But he's using the term faith in verse 23 as shorthand for, what, for the whole phrase that he states in verse 22. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin that what? Here's the phrase. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now remember, this word promise is a technical word in this chapter. 
To understand what Paul means by promise, we have to go back to verse um, verse 14. Verse 14 completes the thought of verse 13 on the purpose of Christ's redemption. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law in order that, verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the what? The promise of the Spirit through faith. So when we see the word promise, when you see the word promise in this chapter and in chapter 4, you have to go back to that third section in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, there are three sections. This is why I say this gets intricate. We have to think in terms of pulling all of these threads together into one to catch the point that the apostle is making. The Abrahamic covenant had three sections. First, there was a promise of land. Then there was a promise of seed. And this related, we saw in verse 17, specifically to Jesus Christ. And what we'll see this morning is that this seed applies to those who are in Christ. That's going to be down in verse about verse 28 or 29. Land, seed, and then the third part was a promise of blessing through the Jews to all the Gentiles. And this is the blessing of salvation in the context of Galatians. Paul is applying that to the whole doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is the principle. This is the promise that there is justification by faith alone, salvation for Jew and Gentile alike. That's the promise. Back to verse 23, or 22, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, the promise of what? The promise of blessing, this blessing of salvation from the Abrahamic covenant by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, that is, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Who's the we there? It says, before faith came, we were kept in custody. This is a very important term here, we. So often in Bible study, everything hinges on little bitty words like pronouns and prepositions and plurals and singulars. We. First person, plural. Who does it refer to? Jews. Paul here is talking about, the, the he's looking at history, the history of salvation. That we Jews from Moses to the cross are under the law. We're imprisoned by the law. The law makes it clear that there's no hope for man on his own. He can do nothing to gain the approbation of God. But before the faith came, before this promise was fulfilled by the coming of Jesus Christ at the first advent, before faith came, we Jews were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Now, verse 26, verse, verse 20, 23, it's, we were kept in custody. Verse 24, therefore the law became our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Still first person plural, still talking about we Jews. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we Jews are no longer under a tutor. Notice verse 26. For you are all sons of God. See, there's a shift. There's a very important shift. He goes from we to you. Second person, plural. That means it should be translated, y'all. 
technically, technically correct translation from the Greek. For y'all are sons of God. Now, who's the you here? Who's this referring to? This is referring to specifically the Galatians, but they are Gentiles in contrast to the Jews. Now, why is there a shift here? One of the things that we notice in, in looking at the Greek text, very important, the beginning of verse 26, you have the post-positive particle. That means it's always translated first, but it never comes first. Gar, G-A-R. Gar always introduces an explanation. Many times it can be translated because. It's going to give us an explanation. The question that arises and about which there's much debate is what is this explaining? And the best solution is that Paul is moving very quickly. He's excited as he's developing this argument, and there is something left out but clearly implied between verse 25 and 26. In verse 25, he says, this is where we concluded last Sunday, but now that faith has come, faith has come. What faith is that that has come? We've already said this. It's the promise by faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has come as the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants to establish the new covenant on the cross, which is the basis for blessing to all mankind. Because that has come, we Jews are no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under a pedagogue. This is the Greek. Pedagogues. P-E-D-A-G-O-G-E-S. Now, this is usually translated tutor. Now, tutor to you and to me in the English implies somebody hired to give additional instruction in a particular course of study. That's a poor translation. First of all, the pedagogues was a slave owned by the father, and his job was to take care of the young son. So first of all, he was a slave, and secondly, he w- it was his job to control and to protect the, the child, the son. To control and protect the son and to provide restraints on his behavior. Third, he was to teach him good manners and how to act as an adult, preparing for adulthood. Fourth, he was his escort through life to take him to school and to bring him home. That was the role of the pedagogues. He is not just simply a tutor. He is designed to oversee the life of this child, the child by... Under Roman custom, the son is nothing better than a slave to the father. He has no rights, no privileges whatsoever. That's something we ought to perhaps implement in our society today. This idea that has come about since the 60s that children have rights is very destructive. If any of you have ever been in a classroom with a bunch of rebellious kids who say, I have a right to this and I have a right, you don't have any right to teach me that you realize the danger that that has created. It's created a very self-absorbed uh, culture among children, and I would include almost all children who, who came of age since the 60s are very self-absorbed. The child in a Roman household was not any better than a slave, and he was under the complete dominion of a slave called the pedagogues, who was designed to control this child, to protect him, to teach him behavior 
see the analogy to the Mosaic Law is the Mosaic Law was designed to control the behavior of Israel to protect them from their own sin, to restrain criminality within the nation and idolatry from infesting the nation from outside. It provided restraints on their behavior, was to teach them how to behave in terms of, of their relationship to God and relationship to one another, and to prepare them for the coming of the promise, which in the analogy is adulthood. If we look at it in terms of, of salvation history, moving from infancy throughout the Mosaic Law period, and then finally adulthood after salvation. Now, Paul is making a very sophisticated argument here. He is saying now that faith has come, now that the promise has been fulfilled, we Jews are no longer under a tutor, a pedagogues. To anyone living in the Roman Empire, what they would understand by that is that from birth to age 14, the child is under a pedagogues. But on his 14th birthday, the child became an adult. He became a huias. At that point, he has all the rights and privileges of adulthood. And he is now in control of the slave. And the slave is under him, and he is no longer under the slave. And so what Paul is saying here is now that faith has come, and we Jews are no longer under a tutor, implication. If we Jews are not under the Mosaic Law anymore, what makes you think Gentiles are still under the law? That's the implication. That is the point. If we Jews are no longer under the guardianship of the Mosaic Law, why do you think Gentiles? should be required to come under the law. That's the point that he has been making from verse 19 down through verse 20, 26, or down through verse 25. And this is what he goes to explain in verse 26 by driving home the point in reference to the identity of every church-age believer. For you Gentiles are all sons, huias, just as Jews were under a pedagogue, and, and by once it's fulfilled, they are some, viewed as sons and adults, and the pedagogue has no, no authority over them. You Gentiles, you Galatians, are huias. You're adults. You're no longer under the pedagogue of the Mosaic law. So in summary, what he's saying in these four verses, since you Gentiles are adult sons, adopted into the royal family, we'll see the doctrine of adoption coming up, adopted into the royal family of God through the baptism by means of the, the Holy Spirit, all previous spiritual distinctions are erased, and you Gentiles now belong to Christ, and so are also Abraham's seed and equal heirs of the Abrahamic promise and not under the law. That's the summary of these four verses. So verse thir uh, 26 drives home the point in terms of their identity that Gentiles received adoption into the royal family of God at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, and positionally we are viewed as adult sons. Now, what do I mean by positionally? See, this is why I'm saying this passage pulls together all of these different threads of doctrine and begins to weave them together so you and I can understand what we have in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, what you and I have in Jesus Christ is so phenomenal and so incredible, and it's the basis for our spiritual life, and nobody ever teaches it. 
I mean, it used to be taught, but today people get off onto all kinds of side issues and they never deal with who you are in Christ. Because if you ever come to grips with everything that God has provided for you, it's going to radically revolutionize the way you think about life. You don't have to get, deal with all the extra stuff. See, that's peripheral. That's application. And if all you ever teach is application, and you never teach people the basis for the application, then they're out there trying to change their lives on the basis of the flesh. And that's simple, superficial morality, and that's Phariseeism. And that's what goes on in most churches today. We have to understand what this means. It goes back to a doctrine called positional truth. So we'll start there. Positional truth. The moment of faith alone in Christ alone. We saw that many times as we studied chapter 2, that salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John, uh, John 3.18, what's the basis for condemnation? Those who have not believed, not anything else, they're condemned solely for not belief. So belief is the issue. Faith alone. At the point of faith alone, we are entered into Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, very technical phrase used by the Apostle Paul to designate our relationship to Jesus Christ, our eternal relationship. This circle represents our eternal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is permanent. It never varies. It never shifts. It is permanent. This is our eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of our position in Christ, we have an incredible array of spiritual assets that are ours in Christ. This is our position. In Christ, we are viewed as adult sons, joint heirs with Christ. The second sphere, the reason we use a sphere here is that in plus the locative of, of Christos is the idea of sphere, in a sphere of relationship. So we use circles to demonstrate this. The second sphere has to do with time. Our temporal relationship, our day-to-day relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In terms of time, this represents, when we're inside the circle, the bottom circle, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. But the Scripture says that we can grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit. Whenever we sin, we are immediately outside of the bottom circle. We are grieving the Spirit, we are quenching the Spirit, and we are under the sin nature control. The only way to be restored is through 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what we're talking about in this passage is not bottom circle reality, but top circle reality. Because the more you come to understand what you have up here, the more it's going to impact how much time you spend in the bottom circle as opposed to outside the bottom circle. That's the thrust. For you are all adult sons. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's stop a minute and see how this applies. First of all, he says, For you are all sons, every one of you. It is an exclusive use. Every one of you are adult sons. So let's understand the doctrine of adoption. While the word for adoption is not used here, that word is huiathesis. As you can see, it has the same root, huias for son, huiathesis. Adoption 
is used when we come down into verse 5 of the next chapter where Paul begins to tie it together. But the imagery is here, and the imagery comes out of the Roman family and law related to the Roman family. So we better start understanding it now. So we're going to look at the doctrine of adoption. Point number one, the practice of adoption is used in the Bible as an illustration of the new position of the believer in reference to God. Adoption in the ancient world was much different from adoption in the modern world. Remember, there's an important principle of interpreting Scripture. The Bible must be understood in the time in which it was written. So if you come to this passage and you think of adoption like we practice it in 20th century America, then you will miss the whole point of this passage, for it's radically different in the ancient world. Adoption in the ancient world was, a, was different from modern adoption. Modern adoption simply makes it someone outside the family, a legal child and member of that family. But adoption in the ancient world, especially in Rome, related to adulthood. Adoption in the ancient world related to adulthood and inheritance. That's critical to understand because even a natural child went through the adoption ceremony at age 14. Let's look at the isagogic background. Now, we use three words around here that you don't normally hear in churches. One of these is isagogics. Isagogics has to do with culture and historical background. You have, in order to interpret the Scriptures correctly, you have to understand the culture and historical background of the time in which it was written. The second word we use is, is categories. People learn categorically. We store things in our soul categorically so that we can recall them later for application and usage. So we have categories. And then the third thing we emphasize is exegesis. Exegesis is a biblical word. Jesus Christ is said to be the exegeto of God the Father, the exegesis. The, it means to explain. It means to draw out from. And it stands for the use of the historical grammatical interpretation where every word is, is uh, studied and the grammatical, uh, the grammar and the syntax of the passage is analyzed in order to understand the meaning and significance of what the Lord is saying to us. So we call this the ICE method, I-C-E, isagogics categories and exegesis. So we have to engage in a little isagogics this morning in order to understand the, uh, the ancient background of adoption. In the Greek world, first of all, let's look at Greek adoption. In Greece, the practice emphasized familial relationship. It emphasizes familial relationship. A man during his life or by his will at the time of his death. Notice that. Even when he dies in his will after he's dead... He can adopt any male citizen into the privileges of his own family. But it always had the condition that the adopted son would accept the legal obligations and religious duties of a real son. So once you were adopted, you had obligations and responsibilities. When Paul uses adoption where he... he he never tells us in the text whether he's talking about Greek or Roman adoption. Remember, here he's writing Galatians. They have more of a Greek background. In Romans, he talks a lot about adoption in Romans chapter 8, and of course there it's more the Roman idea. But, but Paul draws from both 
cultures in order to bring out certain points related to, to this, to illustrate our relationship with God. When Paul is emphasizing the family aspects of our relationship with God, including inheritance, he had the Greek custom in mind. Notice that, including inheritance. We haven't said much about inheritance. It's mentioned in two passages that we've gone through so far, but when we get back after Christmas, we will spend some time discussing the whole biblical concept of inheritance because it's, it's very detailed, it's very important. A lot of people misconstrue and misapply many passages in Scripture because they don't understand inheritance. There are two categories of inheritance, just to give you a little foreshadow. Two categories of inheritance. There's one category that applies to every single believer, no matter how they live the spiritual life. Because we are joint heirs in Christ, we all will share in all of these uh, rewards or inheritances throughout all eternity. But there is another category of inheritance that applies above and beyond our salvation blessings and salvation inheritances. And that's related to how we perform as a believer while we live here on earth. And that's related to the judgment seat of Christ and those believers who are winners, are successful in the spiritual life and grow to spiritual maturity, receive rewards and blessing, and they inherit the kingdom. Those who fail as believers to grow spiritually, to learn doctrine and to prepare themselves for their eternity in heaven will have shame at the judgment seat of Christ. They will lose rewards, 1 Corinthians 3 says, and they will enter heaven yet as through fire. They will not inherit the kingdom. There is a difference between those who will be in the kingdom and those who inherit the kingdom. So we will have to look at that because that provides a lot of confusion. That's why when you have passages that list a number of sins like murder and adultery and homosexuality, and then Paul says these people will not inherit the kingdom, if inherit the kingdom is synonymous with salvation, then why have a jail ministry? Why have a prison ministry? Because those people committed murder and adultery and rape and all these things, and they can't get to heaven if that's talking about salvation. But that's not talking about salvation. It's talking about being a successful believer, growing to maturity, and that means there's forgiveness. Even for those sins, you can get past them, have forgiveness, and grow to spiritual maturity and still inherit the kingdom. So we're going to look at those because it's fundamental to much that Paul says in chapters 4 through 6. Inheritance is a vital doctrine. Roman adoption. Roman custom of adoption was very severe and much more demanding than the Greek concept of adoption. Roman law had a, had a concept called the patria potestis in Latin. Patria potestis. Let me write that on the overhead. Literally, the power of the father. Patria potestis. the power of the father or the authority of the father. The father had absolute authority over a son, which made the son literally nothing more than a slave until he arrived at adulthood. The reason for this was to protect the aristocracy 
and to preserve the inheritance of the family. So if the natural son were incompetent, a failure in life, a ne'er-do-well, or irresponsible, if there were no other heir, natural heir, to the, the family name and fortune could then be passed on to someone who was adopted into the family. That explains what happens in, uh, under the succession of Roman emperors when, when they went from Augustus to, I think it was Augustus to Caligula, to Tiberius, no, yeah, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, uh, Claudius, Nero, in there, and they were not related, but what would do, one would adopt as their son, as their legal son, the next one to take, to fulfill the, the duties and fulfill the line. So, Paul here emphasizes, with the Roman concept, he emphasizes the authority and he emphasizes the preservation of the family lineage and there's an emphasis on all of the property and position that comes to the adult son, his new position in society. Because Roman adoption could bring in a slave. By the time the the child reaches his majority and he's going to be adopted as an adult son at age 14, if he is a he's a loser in life, and the father says, I'm not about to uh, give my inheritance to him. The the pedagogue is much better than he is. I'm going to adopt the slave and make him my son. And that could work out just fine. So Roman adoption emphasized inheritance, not blood relationship, and applied to both the blood son and an unrelated heir. For the first 14 years, a son is put under a slave called a pedagogue, And the pedagogue's responsible for taking that child to school, for training him, for teaching him all kinds of behavior, authority orientation, good manners, and to keep the son out of trouble. During his youth, the son would wear a toga of youth, which indicated his position, that he was still a child and not an adult. On his 14th birthday, there would be a formal ceremony where the child would be designated an adult son. At that time... The father would come up and he would take his hand and he would reach out and he would undo the clasp on the shoulder of the the toga of youth and release that. And then he would take off his toga, which was called the toga virilis or the toga of manhood, and he would wrap that around the shoulders of the young man to signify that he was now the official son and heir of the family. If that did not happen, then someone else would be designated. Now, if you have seen the movie Ben-Hur or read the book, this is what takes place in that movie. Ben-Hur, if you remember, is a slave. He's on a galley ship. They get involved in a battle, and there's, there's this big battle, and the ship he's on is going to sink, and uh, he escapes, he gets, undoes his chains, he gets out of there, and he saves the life of the, the naval, Roman naval commander, uh, uh, I think Quintus Arius. And then... Quintus Arius, in gratitude, then adopts Ben-Hur as his own, gives him his signet ring, which was part of, the, part of the process, which means now you have right to all my property and all my possessions. Everything I have in my bank account is now yours by right of inheritance. And that gave Ben-Hur all of the money and wealth that, and position that he needed, gave him a new name and so that he could go back to, to Jerusalem to carry out his schemes for revenge. But that's the backdrop for understanding what's going on in Ben-Hur. Now, another thing that takes place that underlies this analogy, which is quite fascinating, is that at the time of the ceremony, there is a ceremonial purchase or redemption. A price is paid 
for the son. If the new son, if the adopted son is a slave, then an actual purchase price is paid for his freedom. He is therefore redeemed from the slave market. If, a, if the person who is to be adopted is a free man, then a ceremonial or symbolic purchase is made to purchase him from the authority of his natural father. The analogy, of course, should be obvious to you, that we are all born slaves in the slave market of sin, and therefore God has paid that purchase price to redeem us from the slave market of sin with the death of Christ on the cross in substitutionary atonement. He died as our substitute. The second form of the analogy is that we are under the authority of our sin nature from birth on until regeneration. And in regeneration, we are freed from the authority, not the presence, but only the authority of our sin nature. This is a concept that is so hard for many Christians to understand. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, you are saved. This is phase one salvation, and you are saved from the power of the sin nature but you are not saved from the presence of the sin nature. Anything you could do as an unbeliever, you can still do after salvation. You can be the same old lousy person you were before salvation, after salvation, and commit all the same sins. Whatever they were, you still have those same tendencies. And in many cases, you'll find with people after salvation that because they're in spiritual warfare and they don't know how to handle it, they're going to be faced with many more temptations than they were before, and they may even be worse after salvation than they were before if they don't get any doctrine. Phase two salvation is salvation from the, or phase one salvation is salvation simply from the penalty of sin, and phase two salvation is salvation from the power of sin. Only by learning Bible doctrine can we have principles to apply to control the power of the sin nature. And it's not until phase three, glorification, that we are saved from the presence of the sin nature. So we continually have a sin nature, and it's only at this point at salvation that we're saved from the penalty of sin that we are redeemed and have the ability then no longer are slaves to the sin nature, Romans chapter 6. Now, at adoption... It means the boy is now an adult son, and he has all the rights and privileges there, too. He can enter military service. He has the right to manage his own finances. He can get married, and he can carry out his responsibilities in the Republic of Rome. And the child is no longer under slaves, but now commands slaves. So that's the isagogic background, the practice in Rome. So what is the doctrinal significance of adoption? Point number one. In one analogy that we have seen already, Paul uses the child pedagogue to illustrate the history of salvation and relationship of Israel to the law. So we've seen that already and gone over that in detail, that from birth, that from, from the time of the Mosaic law up to the cross, Israel is compared to this child. The child is under a temporary slave called the pedagogue, and once he, the child reaches adulthood, then that pedagogue n no longer has any power, any authority whatsoever. Second point, at adulthood, the child now has all the rights and privileges which God has given to the church age believer. We are in the adult phase of the spiritual life. We have all the privileges and responsibilities that God has given us. We have true freedom in Christ. Freedom without responsibility 
is anarchy. Responsibility is a vital part of freedom. So with the freedom that we have in Christ, there is responsibility, but we are no longer under the pedagogue of the law. Third, adoption is one of 40 different spiritual blessings which God provides every single believer at the moment of salvation. Back to the chart we used earlier, at salvation, we are entered into a top circle, our eternal relationship with the Lord, and part of what we have there are 40 different things, 40 different blessings that God has provided for every single believer at the moment of salvation. Point number four, adoption is always related to the believer's position in Christ and his identification with Christ, the seed of Abraham, and eternal security. Adoption is always related to the believer's position in Christ, his identification with Christ, the seed of Abraham, and eternal security. See, one other facet of the analogy with adoption was once a a child was adopted as the official son or heir, that could not be reversed. It was permanent. It was written in law. It's the same is true in the spiritual life. Once we are adopted as a child of God, we're an adult son at the moment of salvation, we can never lose that. For anyone to say that you can lose your salvation is nothing more than heresy. Totally ignores everything that happens at salvation. It makes salvation very simple and very superficial as something that is related only to what you believe at the moment. But what we see in Scripture is what happens to you spiritually at the moment of salvation is so vast and so incredible that it is by its very nature irreversible. You are taken from spiritual death to spiritual life. You are invested with these 40 different spiritual things. You become a child of God. All a vast array of things take place and you are given all of God's assets as yours. Point number five. Baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, which is a subject of the next two verses, enters the believer into union with Christ, and that is the mechanics of adoption. So the process by which the believer is identified with Christ at the moment of salvation is called the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Point number six. is the huias of God, the adult son. When we enter into union with Christ at the moment of salvation, we become adult sons positionally. We are in Christ. Christ is the Son of God, the adult son, the huias. When we are in union with Him, we too are adult sons. That's the point. Point seven. As such, because we are in union with Christ, We are huias with Him. We are, the Scripture says, joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. This is illustrated in the analogy by the reception of the signet ring, which represents the vast array of spiritual assets which we receive at the moment of salvation. It is as if you were a garbage collector a rubbish man, at the Trump Tower. And Donald Trump were to come in one day and having observed your faithful work and carrying out your duty, said, I'm going to make you my son and heir. And everything I have is yours. You have 
access to everything in my bank account and everything that I own is yours. That's what adoption means. We are, that's why Paul can say that all his needs are met. My God shall supply all your needs through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What underlies that? It's this whole figure of adoption that we have now been adopted into the family of God and we have access to all of his wealth and power. That is ours, positionally. And then point number eight, simultaneously with our eternal relationship and position in Christ, we have a temporal relationship with him. This relates to joint heirship. The temporal circle, which relates to our filling with the Holy Spirit or how much time we spend out here in carnality under the sin nature, relates to our inheritance. These are two distinct concepts, and we have to keep them apart. This is our what we do with what we have. This is what we have. This is what we decide to do with it. For you are all sons of God through faith. Notice it's through faith, dia plus the genitive, not because of faith, which would be dia plus the accusative. That is why when we get into Scriptures, we emphasize the fact that every single word, every single letter is breathed out and inspired by God. Here's the phrase, dia pisteos. This is the the genitive ending. D-I-A is the preposition, P-I-S-T-E-O-S. If it is, was piston, I-N, that would be an accusative ending. When the preposition dia takes the accusative, it's translated because. And we're not saved because we believe. That would put merit on our part. We are saved through faith. The merit is not on us. Through faith means that all the merit lies in the object of faith, which is Jesus Christ. He did all the work on the cross. We simply accept it. We simply receive it as our own. So in this first verse, we see the importance, the emphasis on adoption that we are all, Jew and Gentile, become adult sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, in verses 27 and 28, Paul is going to explain this in terms of the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Adoption is accomplished in the, in the analogy. Adoption, when adoption is accomplished, the new child, adult son puts on the toga virilis. What we see in the analogy here is adoption into the family of God is accomplished by identification with Christ, that is, baptism with the Holy Spirit, and signified by receiving the toga virilis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So there are two important doctrines in this one verse. One is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the other is imputation of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So let's begin to tackle the first one and see if we can get through that in the next 10 or 15 minutes. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is one of the most misunderstood doctrines today. One of the most misunderstood doctrines today, and there is much confusion about it. So let's begin with the definition. The baptism of the Holy Spirit 
occurs once at the moment of salvation. Every believer is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and is simultaneously created a new spiritual species capable of utilizing divine power. Let me say that one more time. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of salvation when every single believer is identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and is simultaneously created a new species. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And we're capable of utilizing divine power. We have all of these assets, 40 spiritual things and all of our spiritual assets for living the spiritual life. We're placed in permanent union with Christ. That's what the baptism with the Holy Spirit is all about. It's unique to the church age. The first time there was a baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred on the day of Pentecost, covered in Acts chapter 2. So that's the definition. occurs once at the moment of salvation. Every believer is identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. This ministry of God the Holy Spirit is unique to the church age. It is not ecstatic. It is not emotional. It is not experiential. And it is not signified by speaking in tongues. Now, we're going to take this definition apart in the following points. Point number two. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of salvation for every single believer. It's not an experience or an emotion. It's just like forgiveness, regeneration, justification, reconciliation. These things all happened the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior. Did you feel them? No. Did you know about them? Probably not. Did you understand or had you ever heard the terminology before? Not at all. You only understood them later as someone taught you from the Scriptures about those doctrines. You don't know anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit until afterward. It is a very real event, but it is not an experience or emotion or signified by speaking in tongues. Now, there's a problem with understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit which we have to go through. The question is, this is point number three, the problem. Is there one baptism of the Holy Spirit or two? That's the question. We're going to understand this. To understand the history of the of the problem and the confusion is to help understand the solution. The question is, this is point number three, one or two? Point number four. In the theology of Pentecostalism, they say that there are two. Why do they say there are two? Well, if you understand the history of Pentecostalism, it grew out of backwoods religion, in America, it uh, grew out of two or three different revivals, and in the early years, the, many of the major teachers knew, had very little, if any, formal, tra- formal education, much less formal Bible education. In fact, uh, uh, the Pentecostal movement began on January 1st, 1901. It is a 20th century phenomenon when a Bible teacher by the name of Charles Parham, who had very little training of his own, had a little... little uh, Bible College in Topeka, Kansas, 
and one of his students, Agnes Osmond, suddenly spoke in tongues. Now, everybody then expected it to be real legitimate languages, and when it turned out that it wasn't, and they thought it was Chinese, but it turned out it wasn't, many people were disillusioned at that point. Um, Parham then left Topeka, Kansas, and went to Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas, he had a little uh, classroom in the, down in the Heights, and there was a one-eyed black preacher, no education, no background, by the name of William J. Seymour, who, because of Jim Crow laws, had to sit out in the hallway to hear what Parham taught. And Seymour sat out in the hallway and heard that, and then Seymour was called to a little holy, black holiness church that met in a warehouse down on Azusa Street in L.A. And he went in there, and it was mostly a black congregation, but there were some whites in there, and he started teaching this doctrine that, that baptism of the Holy Spirit comes after salvation, and that it's signified by speaking in tongues, and everything just broke loose. It was the wildest thing. You go back and read the accounts of what took place there. It was really, it was really wild, and it just spread like wildfire. But that's its roots. And as a result of that, they spent all of their teaching was based on the English text, not on the Greek text. You didn't have Greek scholars sitting there analyzing things. So when they read the passages in the English text related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they saw two different phrases. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we read, For by one Spirit, by, that's the key word, by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And then they read the prophecy of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 3:11, where John the Baptist says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there we have the English translation, with. There's only one problem. The problem is that in Greek, both phrases are this identical. It's the phrase in numity. E-N plus the dative of means of the word for the Holy Spirit, pneuma. It's a dative of means and should be accurately translated, you will be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit and fire. It's the same phrase in both passages. Because it's the same phrase, it's talking about the same event. In the Gospels and Acts, I think it's in Acts 1.5, Jesus predicts it as well. The baptism is future. It's never occurred before in human history. You have the day of Pentecost, about A.D. 32. And then 1 Corinthians 13, or excuse me, 12.13, it looks back. Every, this is a common experience now expectation that every single believer is baptized. Now, in Pentecostal theology, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is said to refer to being baptized by the Spirit, and that occurs at salvation. I mean, some people hold this. And then there's a second baptism, which is with the Spirit. But what we see is, because of what the Greek says, they are identical. They are identical. It's the same phrase. You can't translate Translate it one way in one verse and another way in another verse just to fit theological presuppositions. There are, there's only one 
one baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's another problem that comes along here, and that is that in the debate over this, it is commonly defined as the following, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that God the Holy Spirit places the believer, so there's your verb, this is your subject, Break this down grammatically. Subject, verb, object is the believer, into Christ. This is the new state. This is our new state. I'm going to wrap this up in five minutes. I don't know if I can do that. Now, let's look at how this is played out in Matthew 3.11. If you want to, you can turn with me there. Matthew 3.11. The same is true for all the other baptism passages. This is the statement that John the Baptist makes. It's also stated in Mark, Luke. It's not stated in John. It's restated again by Jesus in Acts 1.5. Same kind of statement. They're almost identical in every place. As, as for me, blah, blah, blah. It's the last phrase that's important. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what do we have? We have the subject is Jesus Christ. The verb is baptize. Notice it's still future tense. He will baptize you by means of. So means here is expressed by the in clause, n plus the dative of means, by means of the Holy Spirit. The ultimate state into Christ is not mentioned. Now, in baptism statements, you have a, a subject, a verb, a direct object, an end clause, and then the final state, which is mentioned in, in um, uh, 1 Corinthians 12.13, is indicated by the Greek preposi preposition ace, ace plus the accusative indicating uh, direction or final, the final state of, of, um, of baptism. We see this in the first part of Matthew 3.11 where John says, As for me, I baptize you by means of water, in hudity, by means of water, for repentance. Ace metanoia. Ace indicates the state, and in John's baptism, that new state was repentance. Moving from being non-repentant to being repentant. Now, let's look at what happens in one other passage, just for illustration purposes, so you know that I'm not just making this up. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. 1 and 2. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses. So here you have the subject all, the verb baptized, all were baptized, that's the verb, all were baptized into Moses, ace. That's their new place of identification. See, the significance of baptism is always identification. It always signifies identification with something. When we're um, 
all, all seven or eight baptisms in the Scripture all have to do with identification. All were baptized into Moses by means of what? The cloud and the sea. They passed through. So that's represented by the end clause is the means. By means of the water and the sea, when they walked through the departed waters of the Red Sea, following the cloud of the Shekinah glory leading them, that indicated their new identification with Moses. So what I'm saying, and I could go through several other passages when almost every passage in the Scripture talks about has these different elements, but not every passage has every element in it. You have the subject, you have the verb, you have the end clause, and you have the ace clause. Now, the way that normally you find baptism of the Holy Spirit defined is that God the Holy Spirit places the believer into the body of Christ. Who is performing the action in that sentence? The Holy Spirit. But what does, what does Matthew say? And Luke and Mark and Acts. Is that when it's prophesied, Jesus Christ performs the action and He does it by means of the Holy Spirit. So to be technically correct, to formulate a definition of baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit as the agent to identify the believer with Himself. That's what it means. It's what is called, it's, it's the topic of the first part of Romans chapter 6, and what we call retroactive positional truth. Retroactive means that it goes backward. Retroactive positional truth. Positional truth has to do with our position in Christ. At the moment we're saved and we enter into the top circle, we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. As a result of that, and part of that, simultaneously, God the Father takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins. God poured out all the sins of the human race on Him. And God takes His perfect righteousness and imputes that to the believer. Until the point of salvation, we are minus R. At the point of salvation, we are given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we become plus R, and that is the basis for our being declared perfect righteousness. How does that relate? Baptism with the Holy Spirit identifies us with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Because we're identified with Him, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, dikaiosune, the same word for justification, God the Father declares us to be righteous. That's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You see how all of this comes together. By baptism, we're placed in the top circle and adopted as a son so that we have all the rights and privileges of being an adult son in the family of God. Now, let's go back and look at this passage very briefly. We, uh, For you are all adult sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, have clothed yourselves. You have now put on the perfect righteousness of Christ as an adult son. And the result of that is in verse 28 that old ethnic distinctions under the Mosaic law don't apply anymore. No Greek, 
slave or free, male or female, these are no longer issues. They were all issues under the Mosaic Law. Only men could go into the temple. Women couldn't. Only men had certain privileges. Women couldn't. Jews could. Gentiles couldn't. But all of that's been erased spiritually. Man, woman, slave, free, Gentile, Jew, we all get the same spiritual assets. It doesn't mean that these distinctions are eradicated in reality. Men are still men and women are still women. Slaves are still slaves and free people are still free. But spiritually, it's not an issue and all have the same assets because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Conclusion, verse 29, And if you belong to Christ, that is, up here in the top circle, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Literally, in the, in the, in the Greek, literally, the same word we found back in verse 16, you are all Abraham's seed, Heirs according to promise. What does that refer to? That takes us back to verse uh, 14, the promise of the Spirit, the blessing in the Abrahamic covenant. So that the final point he makes in verse 29 is all who are in Christ, Abraham's seed, are also sons of Abraham by virtue of faith alone and heirs of the blessing to Gentiles promised in the Abrahamic covenant, which is justification by faith alone. It's by faith alone, not by the law. The law no longer applies. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the privilege of looking at these things this morning. And there's so many intricate doctrines and important doctrines that are woven together in this passage. I pray that we might be able to remember these, these important things and see how they relate and that God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us that we might appreciate the incredible position that we have in Christ, the phenomenal privilege that you have bestowed upon us as a result of the promise of Abraham and your faithfulness to us, that we might not look lightly or treat lightly the tremendous spiritual life that we have, which is a consequence of the fulfillment of that promise, specifically stated the promise of the Spirit, who is the power of the spiritual life that you have given us in this church age. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not sure of their eternal destiny, that they would take the time to say in silent prayer to you, Father, I believe Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's all it takes. Nothing else is necessary. All it takes is simple faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for these things and pray that we can remember them, apply them this week. In Christ's name, amen.